Now, it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Rosanna Shaw. Rosanna Shaw is an environment reporter for the Los Angeles Times, where she covers California's coastline and the intersection of science and policy. Previously reporting on natural disasters, she now writes about rising sea levels, their effects on California's coastline, and how Californians are responding. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Rosanna Shaw. Thank you, Louis. Really excited to be here, and thank you, Zocalo, for bringing us all together to talk about this very important issue. So, I'm going to introduce our amazing speakers for tonight. We have Sean Hecht, who is an environmental law scholar and the co executive director of the Emmett Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the UCLA School of Law. He has published extensively on how California's coastal communities and governments can adapt to sea level rise. We have Effie Turnbull Sanders, who is a civil rights attorney and a commissioner on the California Coastal Commission, where she leads policymaking on environmental justice. She also serves as the executive director of the South Los Angeles Transit Empowerment Zone. And last but not least, we have Alex Hall, who is a atmospheric physicist and director of the Center for Climate Science at UCLA. His research focuses on reducing climate change uncertainty at both global and regional scales. The state of California selected him as the lead author of the LA chapter of the state's forthcoming assessment on climate change. Really great speakers, <laughs> a lot of expertise. So let's give them a round of applause. So I would love to start off with a pretty simple question that I get a lot still, and I'm sure you all get quite often. Why is the sea rising? I mean, what is causing sea level rise? I, I don't, Alex, I think maybe you should help us set the record straight. Okay, fundamental question, uh, like starting with the foundations. Um, yeah, so sea level rise has been increasing over the past century. We've had about eight inches of sea level rise since 1900. About 45% of that has occurred because the ice sheets are, are melting and mountain glaciers are melting. So that's pretty straightforward, I think. 45% um, of it um, is also occurring because the ocean has expanded. Warmer water um, can take up more space. Um, and so about 45% about of it is due to what we call thermal expansion of seawater. Um, and then the final 10% um, comes from the drawdown of aquifers. Um, so um, the Central Valley of California is a great example of this. We've essentially been mining water from the Central Valley over the past century. Um, to irrigate crops, and that water eventually makes its way through streams and into, um, into the ocean, and that's happening globally. Um, so that's what's been happening um, so far. Um, we can also extrapolate into the future, um, and if we just take these trends and, and, and think um, to the end of the century, we can anticipate um, probably about two feet of sea level rise um, due again to the um, continued melting of glaciers um, and ice sheets, the thermal expansion of seawater, and the drawdown of water from aquifers. Um, and probably those numbers are too conservative um, because we have recently um, discovered a lot of, of, of um, interesting things happening in the West Antarctic ice sheet, um, which, which is an area about um, one-third, if you take one-third of the, of the U.S., um, that's about how big the Western Antarctic ice sheet is, and there are signs that it's becoming unstable because it's being warmed from underneath mm -hmm. due, to, um, due to warming ocean waters. And um, if that were to disintegrate, we'd have an additional 11 feet of sea level rise. Um, so that's not likely to happen in the next century, but um, it kind of underscores the degree to which we are really um, courting catastrophe by continuing to emit greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Wow. And I was just explaining this to one of my editors the other day, but just, you know, the heat's going into the ocean and warm water expands. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah. And, you know, that is also a huge part of it. And, you know, as we talk about sea level rise, you hear a lot of people say it's, they call it a slow moving disaster. You know, you can stand on a beach for an entire afternoon and not really feel this disaster that has been happening, is still happening and will continue to happen. And another, term that you hear a lot within the coastal world is this idea of coastal squeeze. You know, we have rising ocean on one side, the rising water on one side, and then all these towns and buildings and Pacific Coast Highway and all our homes really fixed in place with nowhere to migrate inland as the water's coming in. So I'd love to hear kind of one of you guys take this question, what's getting squeezed out as the water is rising? And 
the other side of it is not moving. <laughs> so, uh, so there are uh, there are actually a lot of different answers to this question. So we have dune ecosystems and beach ecosystems uh, at the coastline, and typically, with uh, I'm not a scientist, I'll preface it by saying that. But the with uh, if you don't have hardened infrastructure that's on the landward side from there, uh, these uh, can they can go in, in, inland, they can come back out. In the case of dunes, they typically will migrate inland. Um, and once you put the Pacific Coast Highway there or you put uh, a building or a sewage treatment plant there, um, it's fixed in place. And so, you know, many people don't know uh, that we have, you know, we, we have added sand to our beaches. Um, the, the piece that, uh, that you published in the LA Times this weekend talks about, uh, about that to a certain extent, Rosanna. The, um, the idea that, uh, that we, we have a lack of awareness, uh, you know, as users of the coastline, uh, how much work it takes just to maintain the beaches the way that we have them. And the coastal squeeze is, is part of what makes that necessary. So dunes ecosystems, I remember um, there was a study that came out last year by UCLA scientists in, in conjunction with a lot of other researchers that salt marshes as an entire ecosystem could go extinct by the end of the century if we don't think about um, managing kind of the space that is vanishing before our eyes in this squeeze. And I think, you know, it really do gets down to this question of land use and our laws. And I know that's kind of a snoozer of a word, but I think it really is about how we choose to manage and uh, manage our land and who gets to use what and who gets to buy their way out of this problem. So Effie, could you talk a little bit maybe about, you know, what the Coastal Commission is seeing right now in terms of this um, existential conversation about what we're doing with our land and it's getting smaller and this whole concept of land use policy in California right now. Yeah, sure, thank you. Um, you know, I think the, the issue of the coastal squeeze is definitely something that the Coastal Commission is uh, focusing on, particularly with our wetlands where we've seen the majority of the wetlands in California disappear. And so we are, you know, focusing more heavily on the protection of those wetlands and trying not to have a, a loss. And so that means protection of both kind of the ecosystems that are created by that, but also the habitat um, that um, exists in those marshlands. Um, we're also looking at um, working with local jurisdictions on sea level rise guidance. And so we passed a, a guidance document that was updated in 2018, working with local jurisdictions to try and provide guidance on how they can start um, implementing management processes in their own local coastal programs. And so, um, you know, the Coastal Commission has the Coastal Act, which it follows, but it also is up to the local jurisdictions um, who are responsible for um, putting out um, local coastal programs that are adopted by the commission so that these decisions can be made on a local level. So we can't do it alone, um, and we're relying on our local jurisdictions to um, help us in this process. Yeah, and it's just, it's so interesting to think about I mean, there are just so many, there are so many factors, there are so many players, there are so many stakes. We just talked about dunes and wetlands and beaches and homeowners, on, obviously. I think that our, there, we talked about this earlier, this fundamental concept of property ownership, right? And that as our land gets smaller and we're fighting for, you know, resource uh, space for wetlands and beaches, that we really do have to have this existential conversa conversation about what we're gonna do with um, properties and properties that are owned by people. So, um, Sean, could you talk a little bit about kind of how property law and property or sense of property ownership is affecting this conversation right now? Yeah, sure. So most Americans have an idea that if we buy a house, if we buy a piece of property, that we're gonna, uh, it's gonna go up in value, and it, we're gonna be able to give it to our children and our grandchildren. And uh, you know, in many places, that turns out to be true. But uh, it turns out, particularly on the coast, 
that that's based on a not entirely realistic sense of, of what the real world looks like. Uh, the coast, in many ways, has always been changing. Bluffs erode and beaches change uh, in pretty in dramatic ways and also in subtle ways. And uh, in California, that change has big implications for people's rights to their to their property. Uh, you know, you can you can try to uh, to armor your property by putting up a seawall, um, but um, as as Effie can can tell us, there are limitations to the ability to do that. But also, in a practical sense, that impacts all the properties around you. And at a certain point, with enough change and enough sea level rise, that's not even going to be effective anymore. And uh, there is a this legal doctrine called the public trust doctrine, which uh, has been around for forever, that says that uh, anything from pretty much where the wet sand meets the dry sand towards the sea um, is held in trust for the public and isn't owned by the property owner. So when that line moves, your property line actually moves. Mm. And this is very sobering to people to understand. Um, and it's a problem, right? It's a huge challenge because if the property owner um, is able somehow to keep out, uh, you know, to keep out the sea, they're affecting public resources when they do it. And at a certain point, when we get to two feet, three feet or more of, of sea level rise, it won't be practical anymore to do that. And we put a burden on public services. And this is the essential problem that we, that we face at our coasts. And, and to put it delicately, I think you know, that is an unanswered question. What do we do with property, private property along the coast that will be a part of this coastal squeeze at the expense of all these other things that we have talked about that are public resources? Um, what do we do and how do we make it fair? And I think that that is a question as we answer the question, what will California's coastline look like by 2100? I think that's something that going forward, all of us, has, we have to all think about that. Um, and, you know, this is something that I also like to bring up a lot in California. We do have a really unique law called the Coastal Act, which, you know, says that the beach belongs to the public and it belongs to everyone. And I. I think that as we talk about this squeeze and, you know, we've got homeowners who are trying to stay on their land as long as possible, but their property line is shifting inland, you know, how does sea level rise affect the way we enforce the Coastal Act and ensure that we continue to have public beaches in the future? Effie? Well, you know... Your favorite I, question? I, I think it's, you know, it, it, it falls into this... Um, kind of uh, positioning that the Coastal Commission has um, where we are mandated to both protect coastal access, but also balance the right of property owners. And so sometimes these things are very difficult. We don't have all of the answers, but one of the ways in which we think about this um, goes to the point that Sean mentioned around coastal armoring. So the issue of coastal armoring um, that occurs ends up taking away public beaches. Um, and the Coastal Commission has um, uh, adopted recently an environmental justice policy to provide further clarification on the right that is both enshrined in the Coastal Act, but also in the California Constitution, which um, makes certain that um, people have the right to access the beach. And so as we start thinking about these issues, we're going to have to start balancing and uh, these issues and make very tough decisions on coastal armoring, on which, ish, which um, uses we prioritize, and also thinking about how do we protect public access? One of the ways that we have done that is with the administrative penalty procedures that allow the Coastal Commission to implement fines for those most egregious actors who, after many warnings, um, continue to block access to the coast. Yeah, and we need to make sure that we still have beaches to access, right? Exactly. And exactly. Um, I think with coastal armoring, I mean, to really simplify it, I've heard environmentalists say that it's a coastal crisis, that they kill beaches and really disrupt the flow of erosion and replenishment of beaches. And I think, you know, one point that I find very powerful is that as the world gets hotter, we'll be wanting to go to the beach more, right? <laughs> so Alex has done a lot of really great studies on heat, urban heat effects in um, not just Los Angeles, but elsewhere. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about how much hotter it's going to get in Los Angeles in the next couple of decades. Yeah, Will we be wanting to go to the beach more? <laughs> Interesting connection. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, yeah, we've, we've done quite a bit of work trying to um, predict how the changes in heat extremes will be distributed across the urban landscape in, in Southern California. Um, and um, in, in most areas, if, if we look um, in the mid-century, in the middle, middle of the 21st century, we, we see um, a two to three-fold um, increase in extremely hot days, so days above 90, 95 degrees um, wow. Fahrenheit. And if we look beyond that to the, um, to the end of the century, we see um, in many parts of, of urban, urban Los Angeles, especially um, if you go a little bit inland, we see five to six-fold um, mm. increases in the number of extremely hot days. So really, and, and there's really a new season of extreme heat if we follow the um, so-called business-as-usual trajectory of greenhouse gas emissions increases, if we just keep on increasing our, our greenhouse gas emissions as we have been. Um, there really will be a, <clears throat> a new season of extreme heat in Southern California. So yes, I can, see, I can imagine people would want to spend more time um, at the beach and would want to have access to the beach. Um, so yes, I think that's, a, that's an important point. So how do we balance this need for preserving our beaches that are shrinking and getting drowned out by rising waters as our highways and homes are fixed in place and um, the infrastructure that we need to maintain and the properties that people are hoping to to keep for their lifetime and for their grandchildren. I mean, how do you balance those two resources and values and stakes? Um, how, can we have both in, as the sea continues to rise? What do you guys think? Well, I mean, I, I think that um, tough decisions will have to be made. I don't know that in every case we will be able to have both. Um, there's not a one-size-fits-all kind of model for the coast because the geologic conditions in one area, for example, in San Diego is very different than kind of like the cliffs in, you know, Crescent City in Northern California. And so I think a lot of it's going to have to be um, really dependent on policies that are made by local jurisdictions. Um, I think there's going to have to be more of an influx of resources on the state and federal level to, to start looking mm -hmm. at um, adaptation models and managed retreat. Um, but there aren't easy answers to it, and I think it, it really is going to be left up to the local jurisdictions with overall guidance from um, the larger um, state and federal entities. In, in many cases, really the issue is what happens when you have to rebuild after mm -hmm. there's a big storm event mm -hmm. or a blufftop erosion uh, that, uh, that's really extreme. And I think the biggest change we're going to see, at least in the near to medium term, isn't that people are going to be just forced to leave their homes, but that if something's destroyed, that you can't build it back the same way. You might have to build further back on the property. Um, and we see that in the guidance that the Coastal Commission um, has already developed, uh, the beginning of guidance in that direction. And, and again, this has always been an issue. So you take an area like Gleason Beach in Sonoma County, uh, where we have a bluff top that was eroding before we had sea level rise. People tried to, to protect their homes by, put, by reinforcing the bluff, and ultimately it was ineffective. And houses literally slid down, on the, hill, down the hillside, and we have houses that are still there. You know, there are areas like that that will just become uninhabitable and that there's no way to provide public services to. Um, in that area, the uh, the Route 1 Pacific Coast Highway is actually going to have to be rerouted inland because it's, it's vulnerable along with the houses. But there are many areas which won't be as extreme, but where when there is a problem, we have to, we're going to have to think harder about do you build it back exactly the same way or are people going to have to think about how they build differently in those areas the next time around? And, and I think that will, you know, at least in the foreseeable future, that's going to be a lot of what we see rather than people just being told, oh, you can't live in this place right now. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the way our insurance is basically set up right now is, you know, if your house gets flooded or disaster hits, and I'm thinking of, you know, the hurricane states and our last few uh, disasters in other parts of the country, you know, the incentive is basically to rebuild as is, but better or stronger. Like, oh, your seawall broke, well, let's build a new one, or oh, your house is flooded, let's just build it again, but maybe a couple feet higher. And there's really no mechanism, right, in place to kind of encourage the homeowner to, hey, here's this money, and maybe you should take this money to buy, build elsewhere, or we're going to buy you out. And you know, how does the insurance component of this, and you know, the way our federal disaster relief, all of your money, by the way, as taxpayers, like how does that affect 
um, this almost like cycle and feedback loop of just staying in place and defending until it really is time to leave, like you said in Gleason Beach. Yeah. Well, a lot of our, our flood insurance, coastal and non-coastal, has been federalized in the 1950s. Uh, insurance companies basically stopped being willing to insure against uh, those kinds of flood risks, and so it is the federal government that collects premiums and pays, and, and, and pays them out. And um, until recently, there was every incentive to just rebuild. Um, in more recent years, there have been a few changes in the law that may make that a little less likely. Mm -hmm. But also, people can buy excess insurance. So if you are a wealthy homeowner in Malibu, you're not relying on the flood insurance program, probably. You're purchasing uh, a much more expensive insurance policy in the open market. And ultimately, it is going to be um, probably regulatory decisions that govern people's rebuilding. Um, there are some other cases we've seen, like on Staten Island after Hurricane Sandy, there were buyouts, and some of, many of the, I mean, all those buyouts really were voluntary, ultimately, because people understood that it wasn't tenable to rebuild and stay in their, their houses. And, um, but you have to have funding for those kinds of buyouts, and you have to have the will from the homeowners to be able to, uh, to figure out how that works. And that was obviously a quite extreme event and the damage that it caused. Yeah, and what's so unique about California, and I'm so glad you brought up Staten Island, I mean, they, um, they, for example, in one neighborhood, they spent New York spent 120. New York, combined with federal and state money, spent 120 million dollars to buy out 300 properties. Uh, how many homes can you buy out with 120 million dollars in the California coast? Mm. Like <laughs> 10 houses in Malibu, maybe. But so those, those homes' market value will be a lot less, though, looking 50 years in the future, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I think the costs are a really. Uh, it, it's, it's really the crux of the dilemma. And then the who pays and then who gets to buy their way out of this. And I think, you know, the, those who can't afford secondary insurance is they're going to stay as long as they want to or, you know, can. Um, so I guess, you know, looking further out, we've been looking further out, but looking more in the short term, I mean, what, what do you think we should be talking about more? What do you think we could do now in the next 10 to 20 years? Or we can even do even more short, short term, like next week, next year? Because I think we get paralyzed by this kind of abstract, oh, all of this stuff, 11 feet of rise by 2100, and all of the stuff that is kind of, there's a huge range in the second half of the century. But what do you think we should be doing in the next year or two or in the short term? Well, I think more resources need to be um, dedicated for local jurisdictions to update their local coastal plans and to some jurisdictions don't even have a local coastal plan to include sea level rise um, policies, managed retreat, um, and looking at kind of that larger picture. The Coastal Commission does provide some small grants to local jurisdictions, but it is a drop in the bucket in terms of the actual cost that it takes to do that planning process. So more resources need to be dedicated um, on a state level um, to be able to enable um, local jurisdictions to do this. And there has to be a shifting of priorities to um, start planning for the um, ultimate eventuality of, of sea level rise. Do you feel like cities in the state know that it's a problem? Because, I mean, if you go to Florida, no knock on Florida, I, I feel like the conversation might be a little bit different. I mean, Alex, Effie, Sean, do you feel like when you're talking to state legislators, coastal planners in cities, do you feel like the science is there still a gap between the science and the policy, or do you feel like do you feel like that is kind of very much happening in the same room on um, specifically on sea level rise? My perception is that the science has been heard and at at the state level certainly, and also I think if you look at municipalities, at local government, and also homeowners and people who live along the coast, I think there's an acknowledgement that this is a reality, mm -hmm. which is great that we have we live in reality, which is nice. We all live in that same reality. Um, but I do think that there's a, there's a, a the, the kind of translation into policy has has not quite quite happened, um, and I, I'm really struck by you know some Effie's comments about how um, the decision making seems to be in the hands of homeowners and municipalities, um, and there there just have to be huge differences in, in ability to cope um, among homeowners and also across municipalities, and um, and and yet this problem is 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 um, you know, certainly, certainly statewide in scope at least. Um, and so it, do, it does seem like there needs to be some more holistic approach than just this kind of piecemeal thing. 
um, along the coast. And I think that's where I think maybe you know science could probably play a bigger role. Yeah, it's always struck me as an environment reporter that <clears throat> we silo ourselves into these boundaries. Like this is the boundary from one city to another. This is the boundary between Oregon and California. But the Pacific Ocean isn't thinking about these boundaries. But if you're in the town of Pacifica, I mean, your seawall might only go to the border of your town. But you know what happens one foot over that. And I, I think that what you just said, this holistic approach is fascinating and important. And I think really a, a, a way forward, but are we, is our legal framework set up to do that? Are we prepared for that? What, what needs to fundamentally well, change to have that happen? Well, in a word, probably, probably no. Like if, <laughs> so if you look, um, I mean, this is a different field, but it's an example of how, you know, what you could say that the political and policy scale doesn't match the physical scale of a problem. If you look at the boundaries of most of the states in the United States, they're either rectangles or the boundaries are rivers, right? So if you're trying to avoid pollution in that river, it doesn't make any sense that you have a state on one side of the river and a state on the other side of the river instead of the same governance on both sides of the river because the pollution on both sides you know, is going to, to affect the watershed of that, that river. Um, and we have similar problems for all of our resources. And so you know, coasts are just an example of that where we have these arbitrary boundaries between cities. Um, I do think, I mean, I give a lot of credit to the staff at the Coastal Commission. Um, I've worked with those coastal planners and they, they understand the scope of the problem. They're working hard to create these policies that, that help local governments to figure out how to do things in a way that's rational. Um, but it's, it's difficult and it's really against, I mean, it's, it's against culturally what we expect as, you know, as, as property owners or just as people who, who live in, in, you know, in a city. I love what you just said culturally because I think as I've talked to so many of these people on all sides of the issue, it's a really emotional issue. And you know, it's, it's an issue grounded in science and facts and undeniable facts, but I think the what do we do about it is so emotional and it is just our attachment to place and our attachment to home and our attachment to history. And I mean, the reality of it is that some things will disappear by the end of the century. And I don't know, how do you, how do, how, how do you talk to people about seeing the bigger picture and whether or not now is the time to let go or how do you how do you start thinking about adapting to a future that really does require you to let go of things that you're comfortable with and things that you're emotionally attached to um, I, I we'll ask the scientist <laughs> yeah, right. the robot over here <laughs> Um, ask Spock, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can only offer some generalities. Um, I, I think that there are, there are, there are things that, um, that are especially precious that, that we have to think more carefully about than, and, and, and prioritize. Um, we didn't mention public infrastructure, but there's a lot of public infrastructure on the coast also that's at risk. There's the ports of LA and Long Beach. Um, there's San Francisco Airport. Um, these, are, these are important kind of organs of our, our economy. Um, <clears throat> so, um, you know, there's, there's probably some, some sense of, of, you know, prioritization. And, and maybe there are certain strategies that where, where beach preservation is emphasized in some places and in other places it's more, it's more homeownership. Um, I can imagine, you know, I can imagine that kind of balancing happening. Um, but I, again, I think that should probably happen at a larger scale than just one municipality or one, one little plot of land. Um, but I, I think some sense of prioritization is in order. Um, this, but not that. Protecting this and, in, in, and improving this, but letting this piece go. Right, but we'd have to break through some intense territorial thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Because I, I remember asking this one planner who I will not name in the Bay Area, who I asked them, pie in the sky, what would, you know, how would you solve this? Or what, what do you think we need that's not there at all? And you know, just give me your best kind of wish that you would want. He's like, I would love to have a Bay Area wide, you know, authority where there's someone who's just thinking about the entire coastline of the San Francisco Bay. And I'm like, how many cities would that require? And he was like 101 municipalities who care about their own boundaries. And I think, you know, just saying that out loud, we realized how futile that might be given the way our um, cities are structured. But I think these are important questions. And I think as 
members of the public, these are things that you should be aware of as you know, your city leaders and state leaders are thinking about this. And I think one question that comes up a lot for me is just what can people do about this issue? You know, what, could, what is one takeaway for our audience um, that they could you know, walk out this room with and talk about with their friends and, you know, hey, the sea is rising and these are kind of some existential questions we have to think about. You know, or what, what, what do you want them, what do you want to point out to them? Just, you know, is there something that they can do? I think one really um, key issue is holding your elected officials accountable to the policies and practices that you want to see. And so getting involved and engaged, um, I'm part of a board that advocates for environmental candidates to be elected to office. And I think that's a huge piece of um, uh, making sure that, that we have a coast that is reflective of, of the one that we want to see in the future. Uh, you know, I guess I, I um, in this issue, I'm just, I'm really um, reminded of these, these questions of scale and the connections between local, um, you know, local impacts and global effects, the connection between the Western Arctic ice sheet and, um, you know, the ports of LA and Long Beach. Um, and also the connection between our own local actions on, on climate and how that can add up to global, um, global effects as well. And, 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 and I think it's clear that we have to stop emitting greenhouse gases. <laughs> we, have to st we have to get off this train. Um, and, um, and yes, we are committed to a certain amount of sea level rise because this, the climate system is adjusting to past increases in greenhouse gas emissions, but we can... Um, we can really reduce the, 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 the risks of, of big catastrophe if we take measures now to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And that can add up globally. And if we start here in California and we make it happen here, it can scale. Um, so that's my message to people. Um, I think I'm going to go big and philosophical. That <laughs> I, um, I mean, I... I we have to be aware as individuals that, we that we're part of a social contract and that we don't exist as independent actors. Mm -hmm. And I think having curiosity about all the different ways that, um, that public infrastructure supports our lives is a really key part of that. Um, I think many people go through life without any sort of questioning or curiosity about, the, about that and believe somehow that, you know, that they exist independently and should be able to do whatever they want. Um, and obviously we live in a society which values uh, uh, freedom a lot um, and we all treasure that. And at the same time, um, having that sort of curiosity to be able to understand and acknowledge the ways that in which, you know, what, what affects our, us and our property is interconnected with public resources is really, really crucial. Yeah, that just reminded me, someone called me yesterday saying, I you know, read your story and I was driving down PCH and really thinking about how I would drive to work without this highway. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> definitely not the 101, <laughs> but, um, but then you know, am I willing to lose all of the beaches along this stretch of coastline to keep this highway? And he said, I don't know. And I think these are questions that I don't know we'll ever really have the answer to, but I think recognizing that these are challenges that we will have to confront whether we like it or not is, I think, a really powerful first step, right? And I think with infrastructure, if we have more time to talk a little bit about infrastructure, you know, Effie, what are kind of, uh, you mentioned ports, Alex, but you know, what are some other big infrastructure pieces that people might not think of. I'm thinking of sewage treatment, you know, and which is a really fun topic, guys. But, you know, there's a lot of hidden infrastructure that we really love building right along the coast that we will have to think about how much taxpayer money we're willing to spend to relocate or defend ad nauseum. But what are some big Well, ones? I mean, you know, we're looking at decommissioning nuclear plants um, where we will probably hear um, from a number of um, entities that are working on desalination plants, um, looking at the, what's the appropriate balance and mix of water portfolio for local jurisdictions in terms of water reclamation, recapture, um, versus kind of in some areas, potentially if it can be done properly, is there an option for desalination? Mm -hmm. um, the way that the old plants were operating clearly was not a, a strategy that could be sustainable. But, um, you know, 
what was talked about with respect to um, transportation, um, you're looking at some of the, um, you know, the Amtrak that goes right um, along the coast um, from LA to San Diego the that I was liner. on, right? The Surfliner, <laughs> um, looking at PCH, which was mentioned, but it, it is going to take a, a full kind of recalculation of some of those infrastructure pieces. But, um, you know, I think that um, Alex hit the nail on the head when he was talking about prioritization and certain things will need to be protected and others will be, have to be some tough decisions about how we do that. And how do we make sure that it's fair? I mean, how do we make sure that everyone who has something that they care about has a seat at the table? I mean, you know, I think this, the equity component, we talk about climate gentrification as a concept that's increasingly become a thing. I mean, what are some things we need to be mindful of as we have these prioritization conversations, you know? Well, I mean, I think to, to your point about equity or, or fairness, um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what equity is. Equity isn't taking the pie and dividing it up so everybody gets their um, proportionate share. And it requires a long-term, long-range um, examination of our practices and policies. Uh, the Coastal Commission has tried to begin this conversation with the adoption of its environmental justice policies, which take into consideration historic wrongs, um, challenges around um, historic um, uh, disenfranchisement and access to the beach. Um, there's a piece that came out today um, with the uh, Bay Street uh, beach area in Santa Monica, um, uh, otherwise known as, in a, in a derogatory way, referred to as the Inkwell, was finally named on the um, register of national uh, National Register of Historic Places. So, thinking about how do we recognize um, these challenges of our past, and that was an area that was a segregated beach that African Americans were frequenting and had a whole culture around beach going, but it was because of the violent. Um, Jim Crow laws that force them to congregate in one area. So looking at how do those past wrongs mm -hmm. influence now exclusionary policies? Why um, are there not as many um, people of color on the beach? And you look at those segregationist kind of policies that literally swept people out that um, came in with eminent domain um, practices, condemned um, entire communities and wow. um, uh, uh, members of uh, the public to kind of second-class citizenship. And then now, how can we look at those challenges and think about um, how do we have a more inclusive society? And again, there are tough choices to be made, but I think that um, if California is to move together and deal with some of these issues around equity and social justice, we're gonna have to be able to do that. Wow, aren't we glad the Coastal Commission is thinking about that? <laughs> that was great history, thanks Effie. And um, yeah, and I, I think, you know, in closing before we go into questions, I'm, I'm just curious, I mean, what are in your individual fields and worlds as you talk about this, what are kind of the next questions that you're looking into, you know, short term or long term relating to sea level rise in California? I mean, at, within the, the center, like, what are you guys looking into? What are you trying to answer more? With the Coastal Commission, we've gotten kind of a sense, but I'd love to hear your thoughts more on that. And Sean, kind of from the legal perspective, what are you guys debating? What are you looking into? What's next? Uh, well, there's, there's a lot of great climate science to be done around this issue. Um, the, we didn't talk about this too much, but the, the big impacts of sea level rise happen during storm surges when they coincide with high tide. And there are all these questions about changes in storminess um, in the future. Um, so one thing that we're looking at is um, how, to, how to make those projections um, much more accurate so that we can, um, we can talk about sea level rise in conjunction with increases in extremes like storminess. Mm. Um, so that's, that's one thing we're looking at. How um, are we measuring that now? Are cities measuring every time? flooding happens, or are we keeping track? Who's keeping yeah, track we of have, it? Yeah, we have tide gauges, certainly, okay. and we're keeping track of, there's, there's a lot of variability in sea level, um, and we're, we're keeping track of that and monitoring that. And again, it's those kind of high events that we're, we're, where you really see the impacts. I think in your piece, you had a video, actually, of, of a storm surge happening in Pacifica. And do you um, see room for cities to 
partner with scientists more on collecting this data. I, I remember, now that you remind me, that Imperial Beach um, was agreeing to provide more flood data to um, Scripps Oceanography down in San Diego. But just this idea of the community being more involved in documenting every time it floods or every time the seawall gets overtopped. I mean, do you see opportunity in that kind of data for the science that you're... For, for I think generally in the environmental sciences, um, we, 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 we need to take more advantage of, advantage of citizens and, and their ability to observe and collect information and data. And I think Sea Level Rise is a great example of where um, we could learn a lot from people. We could have data can be collected automatically and downloaded to the internet and uploaded to scientists. And that's a, that's a really great um, opportunity. And it also engages people in the issue that they care about, which is so, so important to them. So. Um, it's a it's a it's a great way to um, to, to work with with um, with non scientists on a scientific problem. Effie, I mean, I, I think I've covered uh, what the Coastal Commission is is doing with respect to sea level rise, but I think more needs to be done with respect to education mm -hmm. and understanding the implications of it. Um, one of the most heart-wrenching things is to have an applicant come before the Coastal Commission who's spent their life savings on a home and um, telling them that they may not be able to get a seawall permit to protect or armor their home because it eventually is going to um, take away from the beach or they're not grandfathered in, so they're not entitled to to that. And so those are those are tougher um, choices that are are having to be made but also looking at you know again working with local jurisdictions around armoring these major centers of infrastructures the ports for example and looking at you know how are we going to be you know dealing with that into the future so there's um, there's legal uncertainty over some of the most basic questions about the governance of the coast right now, mm -hmm. and that legal uncertainty is, doesn't seem anywhere close to being resolved. So really basic questions about um, what people have the right to do with, with their property under certain circumstances, how the Coastal Act should be interpreted, under what circumstances the Coastal Commission uh, lawfully can prohibit seawalls and other armoring, um, to what extent people might be able to build in, and rebuild in ways that um, you know that that uh, that I would say uh, seem to violate public trust principles, but which uh, various other in interest groups that litigate over these questions um, believe uh, it should be lawful. A lot of those questions are still not settled, um, and so uh, a lot of what I'm seeing is years of uncertainty ab uh, on the part of local governments about what the extent of their powers are and threats to sue them if they regulate in certain ways and those issues going making their way through the courts or maybe not even making their way through the courts and the uncertainty continuing. And so a lot of what I see is, is trying to understand how to properly to apply a set of legal principles in a, in a state of, of, of uncertainty about the law. Even after you know, hundreds of years, we still don't have definitive answers to many of those questions. And how do you reach certainty? I mean, you were talking earlier about how as the shoreline moves inland, your private property moves with it. Mm -hmm. You know, that hasn't been challenged in the courts. Do we need a new law from the state legislature to say that? Do we need to have someone sue to challenge it all the way up to the state Supreme Court? I mean, how do you, how do we reach certainty in these yeah. legal uncertainties? So, so there are lawsuits uh, pending and, and planned challenging um, the coastal regulators authority mm -hmm. uh, to take those kinds of actions. And a lot of the claims, some of the claims they bring are federal constitutional claims. The Fifth Amendment of the Constitution says that the government can't take someone's property without compensating them. And so the question is, at, at what, you know, in, under what circumstances can a regulation limiting what somebody does with their property constitute an unlawful taking if the government doesn't compensate them? And uh, there are a lot of those cases in the courts, um, but none of them have definitively resolved these issues. And one of the basic questions uh, that has to be resolved is um, if 
the, if what's at issue is public trust resources, um, one argument, an argument that I've made and that, that, that some courts have, have said is that those public trust principles mean that you just don't have the right to use your property in a way that violates those principles. But then there are litigants who say that that, that actually isn't how courts ultimately should rule on it. And um, yes, there's going to be you know, decades probably of lawsuits over this before that ultimately um, gets settled. And in the meantime, local governments and the Coastal Commission and uh, homeowners have to figure out what to do. Well, I will be calling you after this for <laughs> more questions. Um, thank you, guys. I think we're going to open it up to questions, but let's give everyone a round of applause. Hi, my name is Andrea Leon Grossman. I'm with Azul, which is an organization that um, looks after um, ocean and, and coastal conservation with Latinos. My question uh, is how, um, well, it's evident that what's happening right now is basically the fault of fossil fuel industry. We know that greenhouse gas emissions um, have contributed to this issue and they had known uh, since the 60s. And they knew and they did nothing about it. So is there any plan on holding them accountable? Because I, I don't think it's fair for taxpayers to be paying for something that they knew that they could profit from. So um, I don't know if any would like to answer. So there are pending lawsuits right now by local governments uh, in California. Uh, where those local governments are suing uh, fossil fuel companies, including major oil companies, um, claiming that those, those companies' uh, uh, activities, their decision to withhold information from the public, um, and uh, that, that that contributed to sea level rise specifically. And those cases are making their way through the courts. Um, it's going to be a long time before those cases are, are resolved. Um, but but those, that, that's one of the mechanisms that we see right now. Because they're, they're still fighting electrification, they're fighting still clean energy, so, and, and that's a way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions immediately. Mm -hmm. My name is Jeff Newman. Um, my question deals with um, actually two aspects of the state. One, as you're talking about, there's, is there's an inexorable challenge of, due to climate change on sea level rise, which is reshaping in the long run our communities along the coast, um, and it has with it all the issues that you discussed. Similarly, there's inland the inexorable challenge of fires that are taking place, which also run through jurisdictional, interjurisdictional property and so forth. Are there discussions about lessons learned between the two in that also that the fire seasons are much shorter in their time constants than the sea level rise? I think that the fire there are a lot of analogies between the two situations because in the case of um, wildfire, you have, you have people who have chosen to live in landscapes that are prone to wildfire. And, um, and in addition, you, know, you have climate change probably changing the character of wildfire where it occurs and also changing the zones that are affected by wildfire. Um, and so I think, and then you have the insurance industry and the, the, the dynamics um, associated with insurance, which I think are also kind of similar. So I think they are, are, they are similar. Um, there, are, there are similarities there. Um, and um, and the, the, that, that's, a, that's a very sensible thing to think about, I think. Do you, other <laughs> No, I mean, I, I think it goes to the point of the need for better natural resource management across the board um, as it is impacted by um, climate change and um, thinking about these issues to the extent that we can predict them and to the extent that we can um, plan ahead for them that that local jurisdictions and the state and uh, federal government needs to start planning for that. And I mean, some of the way, the things that these issues have in common are the need both for planning and for compensation after the fact. Mm -hmm. And so there are people who look more broadly at climate adaptation planning and compensation schemes and see each of the, you know, fires and sea level rise and other types of impacts as all um, just different manifestations of the same set of problems. And there, there, are, there are scholars who've come out with adaptation principles about uh, how governments can best implement uh, equitable policies so th there are people making those connections. I don't know, I mean, the, one of the challenges is our governance is still siloed between different mm -hmm. agencies and, um, and, and it's hard to know how those lessons are being adapted. Michael Alexander, 
11 feet by 2100 means that it's probably going to be three feet in the lifetime of most of the people in this room. And that could mean that the uh, Sacramento River and the San Joaquin River will be pushed farther inland. And I'm wondering a couple questions. One of, what are the implications of having those rivers uh, being pushed inland in terms of the water supply for Southern California, the water supply for agriculture? And will ultimately that mean that the Coastal Commission's domain will start uh, moving more and more inland as well? Um, so it's, it's two feet of sea level rise under business as usual by 2100, with the caveat that it could be much higher um, because of this ice sheet problem. So, uh, so I want to make sure you understand that. Um, but yes, the, 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 the delta is very vulnerable to sea level rise. And the delta, as many of you may know, is a conduit for water um, from Northern California to Southern California. It comes through natural channels in the delta and then is sucked up by the state water project and brought southwards um, to us in Southern California. Um, a lot of those islands are, are below sea level right now. Um, because they have been eroding away over the past century due to farming practices. They're currently protect protected by levees, um, but they do overtop occasionally. If there is um, a big storm surge and with sea level rise, um, you can imagine that being much more likely. Um, in addition, that's a seismically active part of California. I see a couple earthquake risks with that. Um, you have a situation where you could easily imagine that being inundated sometime in this century and saltwater intrusion preventing water from being brought south. So that's a huge risk for California. It's conjoined with sea level rise also, um, and especially for Southern California. And I think that's something that's not quite as appreciated as it should be, that we're quite vulnerable because of the, of the, um, the risk of sea level rise in the Delta. UCLA has a cross-disciplinary project um, called the Environmental Grand Challenge, and one of the prongs of it is, is the aspiration of, of, of planning for 100% local water uh, in the foreseeable future. Right? Is it by 2030? Um, 2050. It, 2050. Yeah. Uh, at which you know, it, it may or may not be realistic, but as an aspiration, um, you know, I, I, that's, that's a, a crucial piece of, of planning. And the coastal zone maps are set by the legislature, and so there is, you know, the, the potential for those to change. But um, as it currently stands, the Coastal Commission is working closely and trying to make more of an effort to work with its um, sister agencies that have natural resource management and looking at these things from a larger um, uh, perspective and understanding that they're interconnected. But these are issues that are... Um, Coastal Commission is having conversations with other agencies around so that there is less of a siloed effect and more of kind of an interconnected approach. That's ultimately the goal. It doesn't always happen, but that's the goal. And to make it even more complicated, the coastal area around San Francisco Bay actually isn't even in the Coastal right. Commission's jurisdiction, but there's a different <laughs> coastal agency Bay that Delta. just manages the area. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. uh, but the, I mean, you, you work together on yes. various things, but, uh, but just as an example of some of the challenges. But the Delta is totally separate, right? That's managed totally separately from the East, from the East Bay. Well, the, commis the commission that governs it separate from the Coastal Commission, right. yes. And then once you get inland to the coastal zone, then there isn't that there sort isn't. of coastal management at all. The, right, you're right. Hi, I'm Sarah Pillsbury, and uh, I'm just going to have a, kind of a global question of how do we make people understand that we've all got a horse in this race? You know, that whether we go to the beach, whether we have property on the beach, whether we live in wildfire areas. I mean, even, even though I realize that there's this interconnection, I don't really know beyond the water coming up the beach what is happening with species, how it's affecting the entire ecosystems that could uh, have other sort of dramatic effects in terms of what's available for us to eat. Or in, in terms of the public, when, when we are all taxed with having to pay for for poor government decisions, uh, individual hubris where people build where they build. I mean, what can we do to make sort of more people realize that this is not something happening uh, to somebody else somewhere else? I think one element of that is coastal education. The Coastal Commission has a pretty broad and expansive um, coastal education program, but it needs more funding. And where I see that happening is really with young people. Um, uh, not saying, you know, that, that uh, folks our age are, are um, to, to be counted out, but um, I really think that it's very important to think about um, young people like, the, like my own children who are learning about these things and understanding them from a different kind of perspective that's one that's much more 
interconnected and not based on kind of traditional Western values around property ownership and looking at the um, commons, the collective commons and understanding their role and place in that. And I think as we kind of evolve, we're already kind of moving backwards into kind of understanding of that commons from a perspective that indigenous people have had for, you know, thousands of years. As a science, how do you get the, how are you getting the word out about what's, what, what the real dangers are? I'm here, first of all. No, I think, I think engage, engaging with the public, um, engaging with, with, with the media. Um, and I also really think that we have become increasingly fragmented as a society in ways that go beyond the environment. Um, and I, I, I think that we have, that's, that's something that we have to work harder at. Um, I have um, a lot of relatives on the other side of the political aisle, and I talk to them. Um, I, I, I believe in talking to people and engaging with people. Um, and and I, think that, I think that we getting involved in sustainability um, is a great way to connect to people also, and, that can, and I think we are the most powerful force. If we choose to connect to one another, I think we will address these issues, but so far I think we're not doing that. We're going the other way. I'm Mike Parker, and I want to thank you for sharing all that great knowledge. Almost piggybacking off of the uh, woman that just spoke over here on the other side, um, I, I live in, um, I, well, I'm going to call it out South Central in Los Angeles here. It is a kind of lower socioeconomic and maybe lower educated area, and I share what she's saying. I'm appalled when I see the amount of the tonnage of concrete and cement mixtures that people are pouring all over their properties, front, back, up, and all over the place, with very little code enforcement or regulation. And then I, as traveling, I was in another state, and um, I was spent a little time in this kind of extreme opposite one percenterville, and uh, the sprayers were going 24/7. You know, no, uh, no. Um, uh, what am I saying, solar panels on the roofs because it isn't aesthetically pleasing. And it, the, the mindset was kind of, um, the mindset was kind of, we can afford it, we don't want to contribute. How can we get that word out again by kind of mandating it to everyone? Your question and comment are a good example of how this really does transcend lines of class and, and other markers in this society. It's not, it's not all about what rich people do. It's not all about what poor people do. Um, and we need education at all, at all levels. Um, I guess what, what I'll say is that the, the folks who have more political power tend to be people who are wealthier and getting them on board helps a lot in various ways. Um, and so, you know, focusing education there is helpful. And at the same time, um, you know, we have a much larger education problem in, in you know, everywhere in the, in the country, not enough resources in a very basic way. Um, and, you know, devoting more of those resources towards uh, basic science education, I think, would be super helpful. But I, I'm so not an expert on, on this set of, of questions. I, uh, I, I feel like, uh, like uh, you know, anybody in this room probably could say as well as I could exactly what the, what, what the answer is to how to communicate that. Well, there are a lot of, um, particularly South Los Angeles, and that's the, the area that uh, the organization I work for is focused on. There are a lot of organizations in that area that focus on sustainability and resilience, and so there is an issue of plugging into those resources. Um, the State Strategic Growth Council has um, invested in local communities um, that are um, uh, that have suffered disproportionate impacts of climate change. Um, in South Los Angeles, there was a recent award um, to the, for the Slauson Avenue corridor to convert a pedestrian bicycle path to, I'm sorry, convert a rail spur to a pedestrian bicycle path, pedestrian walkway <laughs> and bicycle path. And um, it is to do community outreach and engagement along that corridor, which will be ultimately built by LA Metro. But those are the kinds of efforts, Trust South LA, Scope, um, Brotherhood Crusade. I mean, there are, you know, maybe 50 organizations in South Los Angeles that are actively working on sustainability. So they exist, but they are under-resourced and they need funding.
Yeah, and, and there is a lot of youth organizing out there. I mean, when it, there are impacts on people's communities and they organize, it can be very powerful. And so, you know, I've worked with East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice, um, which works around the, the 710 corridor in the southeast part of LA County. And there are some folks there who care a lot and are super educated about this. And it's really about the organization around them. And, you know, the, which, uh, you know, in, in that case, there are particular leaders who've managed to, to really uh, attract attention and and, and uh, to you know to, to their cause and to organize groups of youth to really care about this and so um, I have a lot of hope in that in that area. Hi, Graham Hamilton. I work with the Surfrider Foundation, and uh, I have a question for Commissioner Sanders. Um, kind of riffing off of Rosanna's question about looking toward the future, we're going to have to say goodbye to some things while we look to keep other things. And specific to seawalls, the battles have always kind of been between private homeowners erecting um, hard structure on the coast. Um, affecting public resources, sand, down coast. Do you see or have you seen in your work on seawalls and dealing with seawalls, um, these battles kind of scaling on a, on a municipal level where, for instance, a city is interested in armoring their coastline, but a city down coast might be concerned because it's going to inevitably starve their beach, their resource from the action that would be taken upstream or up. Well, I definitely think that's already happening. Um, I think some of the examples that were given today around armoring major um, centers for infrastructure and critical um, critical infrastructure development um, is is starving the beaches um, downstream from um, those developments. And so I do think that there are tensions that are existing, and so that's why this idea around kind of a statewide policy and um, statewide policies around sea level rise are so important, but I don't really envision kind of a one-size-fits-all um, model where seawalls will be completely excluded um, from the picture, but it's really trying to figure out where they're best situated and trying to eliminate them as much as possible so that we can preserve the beach for the public. Before we close, I'd like to thank our partners tonight, UCLA, for making our UCLA Zocalo downtown series, excuse me, Zocalo UCLA downtown series possible. Also, I'd like to thank all of you for being here tonight. Uh, it was great to have a standing room only crowd for this really important issue, and please stick around for the reception afterwards. We're going to continue this conversation over drinks with our panelists. And finally, a big round of applause for Rosanna, Sean, Effie, and Alex. Thank you all so much. <laughs>